Greetings everyone. Today we're talking about patent attorney career. During my PhD times, I had no idea that such career even exists. So let's hear what is this and why it might be your first or last option. Hi, Simon. Thank you for coming by. And uh, yeah, let's start. First of all, let's tell people who you are, what you're doing and why you're doing what you're doing. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. So my name is Simon and I'm a chemist by training. So I did uh, study chemistry and did my PhD in uh, synthetic organic chemistry in the area also of um, development, reaction development. Then went into IP, so a completely different area, so to say, and have been working in IP since 2016, so for five years now. There, obviously, I'm dealing mainly with chemistry-related inventions, as I will discuss, and we will discuss in detail later on, I think. Um, there, I'm working on very different areas of IP. So you have things where you obviously write patent applications. I think that's what everybody thinks of when they think of IP. Yeah. But there's also a lot of um, contentious proceedings, so fighting between parties, let's say. And that's a very important part of IP as well. That means attacking patents from competitors and things like that, enforcing your intellectual property rights and all these things. And that are all things that I do in my day-to-day -day work. At which point you decided that I want to go to IP why you you got into it was it calculated so to say or it was like yeah let, let's check it out yeah it was very much the second very much the latter <laughs> uh, no it was not calculated at all for me and I, I was actually um quite surprised to later on find people that were very calculated in that sense that they even studied technical degrees to become patent attorneys i never never thought about becoming a patent attorney when I studied chemistry. So when I studied chemistry, I wanted to be a chemist. Of course I wanted to be a chemist. Uh, and uh, I did my PhD in the UK. It was a really fascinating time. I did my PhD in cooperation with a company that was sitting in France. Wow. So I had the opportunity to spend eight months in France. And, uh, and I was doing uh, development work there, so scale-up processes and things like that. I really enjoyed that. I really wanted to do that uh, when I graduated with my PhD, um, but I didn't find a job. And uh, so I decided, okay, uh, after doing that for a while, I actually got to quite a lot of interviews, so it didn't go that poorly. But um, I realized, okay, I want to look a bit more broadly into different areas that exist. That is also something I strongly recommend to all other, uh, let's say, chemists or life scientists or other scientists, because I think coming from university, and I think you said that before too, um, we are a bit narrow-minded. We believe, mm -hmm. we, we think a lot of uh, research and development as the two main aspects that exist, but scientists can be employed in so much, in so many areas and so many different fields. So um, I was really skeptical about IP, to be honest. I, I sometimes had to uh, use patents for procedures in the lab, and I hated that. I thought, what the hell is wrong with them? Why do they write so poorly? I mean, nobody can do this. What, what are they doing here? 
and when I when I looked into it, so I, I applied for a position and in, in, at a law firm. And when I had the interview, they basically explained to me what was standing in front of me if I wanted to mm -hmm. go down that route. And uh, I was actually a bit intimidating because they told me, yeah, you have a training of almost four years and you have to do these massive exams in uh, German and in European patent law. Mm -hmm. That um, and, and you actually have this time in, in Germany that's really extreme because you have to go to Munich for eight months. Every single German patent attorney has to go to Munich for eight months wow. in, uh, after their three-year training in the two to three years, depends a bit. In the law firm, they have to go to Munich. And when I heard that, I was thinking, no way I'm doing this. So I was actually, I left the, the, the job interview that I had thinking, no, I'm not going to do that. But they asked me if I wanted to do a day on the job just to mm -hmm. look into it. And uh, actually, my brother convinced me to do it. I was this close to just saying I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and then I did that day on the job training. And I realized that IP was completely different than I had anticipated. It was very strategic, very analytical. I really felt like the things that I enjoyed during my PhD to things to, to really think through complex problems, to find solutions, that all these things would be possibly relevant in this profession. And, and fortunately, uh, that was actually correct. Like, uh, obviously, I only had one day that I tried this out, but um, it gave me really the impression, okay, this is not boring at all. This is actually really interesting, and it's worth the effort to put in another training and to put that a little bit into perspective, it's also important, I think, when you do this training, you still pay a, a decent wage. It's not like you're, like, it's called in German Ausbildung, apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of people think you pay 800 bucks a month or something, and that's not true, right? You pay, uh, like a postdoc, I'd say. So it's not yeah, super, it's pretty super decent. amazing or anything, but for a training is absolutely fine if you're doing absolutely fine doing that yeah and so yeah that was my route to ip <laughs> i didn't expect that to happen but uh yeah fortunately i did that because it turned out to be to be a lot of fun and how did your brother convince you where is he working <laughs> he's doing something completely different so okay uh, <laughs> so he was he, he was basically just saying that's really interesting because he has just a completely different mentality because he doesn't come out of this like area uh, he has more like the the idea like well just try it out and if you don't like it just leave which yeah. was always i mean which is true but which was always something i'd struggle with i would be more like okay now i started now i gotta go through with it and things like that but well basically this argument really kind of got me to just try it out uh, when he said uh, you can always leave if you don't like it just give it a try three or four years of education in patent law because uh, from okay what i've heard from other patent attorneys that you like basically half half into learning new things and working as a sort of clerk at this law firm Yes. Is it like it's this? It's quite complicated, yeah. I will try to explain that in the best way I can. Yes, I mean, you, you, you're right, right? You, so basically, you're working 
normal job at the beginning with a very steep learning curve because mm -hmm. uh, in the first few weeks and even months you will struggle to even understand a word like as i said early on about patents the language is so yeah. specific and special that you really need to get used to it eventually it's like the second nature but as everything in the beginning like when you're learning chemistry right i mean when you're learning oh, chemistry yeah. at the beginning uh these signs that make make no sense and eventually you have like these really complex natural products that you understand because mm -hmm. that's second nature to you yeah, and it's true. the same with with patent law and the language and patents you get very used to it eventually but in the beginning you really struggle to even understand what the technical area is because it's mm -hmm. written in such a special yeah. way a weird way that is definitely definitely a challenge just trying to remember what exactly was your question now wait, wait, wait. like when you during these three or ah, four yes, years right, when you're doing yeah, like, how? yeah okay so i will explain it for the german because it's yeah so yeah basically have yeah we're speaking just yeah only about germany yeah so basically what you can say first in germany you have you're becoming a german patent attorney that's one part and you're becoming also a european patent attorney and these are two completely separate path of education so they kind of i mean obviously you can use the things you learn in one area for the other but no. like structurally they are different and in the german one the idea is okay you're in the law firm for at least 26 months up to 36 months most law firms try to get a bit more than 26 months of relatively cheap labor out of you mm, okay. uh, <laughs> and so you probably be around 30 to 36 reason, uh, most of the cases I know are like 30 to 36, but there are also people who stay 26 months in the law firm. And during that time, you work on the files that the attorney that you're working with gets. Basically, the idea is that in the best case scenario, you have one, two, two maybe one to three attorneys that you work for mm -hmm. that uh, get a lot of very different kind of projects, um, and yeah. I mean that in a technical sense, but mainly in a patent law sense. So both are relevant, but the really important part is also to see different areas from a, from a patent law perspective. But that's actually one thing I'd strongly recommend for anyone looking into this profession. It's very, very important to early on check, okay, in this law firm with this attorney that I'd be working with, will I have different types of projects or will I be doing one and the same thing mm. for 26 months or 36 six months in a row? Because then your training is not going to be very good and that's not going to help you to become a good patent attorney later on. So what you want is a firm that provides you with very diverse set of mm -hmm. projects and then you just work on them. And in the beginning, your role is to focus mainly on the technical aspects because that's where you're strong, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. You have a PhD, you're very good in your technical area, and of course, and actually most of the time, much better than the attorney, right? Uh, if, if you start in this area, uh, you're still really fresh from university, so there will be areas in, for example, in my case, that was organic chemistry. I, I, I could really help the, um, the, the attorneys a lot if, if there were problems with, for example, analyzing spectra. That was, oh, okay. that's not something they get on a daily basis and yeah. they really removed from that. So like explaining them 
the analysis of NMR spectroscopy and things like that. That wasn't really something they did that much anymore. And so having people that are relatively fresh from university are really helpful for that. Um, but the longer you're in that position as a candidate, the more you also learn how to do the law aspects and the more mm -hmm. you really become useful also in the patent law areas. So drafting claims, like drafting applications, which is mainly drafting claims and then just writing the rest down. But that's a different question. And But also how to argue, differentiating between good and bad arguments, right? In the beginning, you have no feeling for all these things. Yeah. You know your technical things, but you don't know, okay, how do I understand what is really a convincing argument before a court or what is actually one that might actually hurt me more than it actually helped me? And all these things that take some time. So this is one part, and this is a full-time job, mm -hmm. to be expected at least. Yeah, at yeah, least. Yeah. There are different law firms. If you work at a hotshot law firm in a big city, it's probably going to be at least a full-time job, uh, maybe even a bit more. Right? And if you work at a smaller firm, there might be more relax about giving you time off to study and things okay. like that. And then you do um, a, like a small version of a law degree, but let's be honest, a very small version of a law degree. Yeah. Uh, that's a two-year course at uh, the Distance Learning University in Hagen. And it's, so, it's only one university in Germany, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you always have to realize what a small size this whole area is. In Germany, there are 4,000 German patent attorneys. 4,000 in crazy. the entire, entirety of Germany. And every year we have around 500 new European patent attorneys. 500 Europe-wide that includes wow. the UK. So the numbers are ridiculously small. And, and also you gotta realize these are all technical fields. So chemistry yeah. is made 20% of that, right? So uh, it's not a huge area, so you have, uh, it's, very, it's highly specialized. Um, there are people who work in IP that do not do the whole qualification thing, but if we're talking about really drafting, um, patent applications, writing uh, responses to office actions from the, from, the, from the patent offices, but also contentious proceedings, that means uh, oppositions, appeals, all these things, that's work of patent attorneys. And so if you want to do the, the cool stuff, you got to go through the whole, <laughs> so through the whole process, yes. So you do these two years then in Hagen. Um, that is actually, I'd say, very doable. Don't expect that to be anything like, it, it's, it's more of something where you should expect to invest maybe a weekend a month Mm -hmm. So you're not going to study all the time, but you're going to do one weekend a month. You invest in your projects on, on mm. for your Just studies. Just the boxes, right? And then you have uh, two written exams and one oral exam, and then you're done with that study. So it's it's very small, right? It's mm -hmm. nothing. But it's the, the idea of it is actually you're not going to learn anything about patent law in this degree. That's funny. <laughs> it's only about civil law. It's about getting you the basics of how law works. So, and that's actually something they in, introduced in the 90s because they had the impression that patent attorneys were not um, trained well enough in thinking like lawyers. And they wanted them to think a bit more like regular lawyers, get a yeah. bit of an idea of 
procedural challenges uh, in mm. front of courts and things like that. And I think it helps a lot. I really, I mean, I really did enjoy yeah. this. Yeah, it makes sense, yeah. Um, I, I found it quite useful. So once you did all of that and you finished your time at the law firm, you also have some extra courses in the evening from time to time about the different areas of IP because IP is not just patents, it's also trademarks, it's designs, uh, it's uh, the rights of um, uh, employee invention uh, protections, all these different areas that you will be working on. Patents are the biggest one. Patents and trademarks are the two big ones, but um, it's still important to hear about all of them at some point. And after you did all of that, then you go into the Amtia, as it's called. And the Amtia is in Munich. Oh. It's becoming digital, maybe. That's the hope now. COVID <laughs> is changing things. Uh, I went to Munich in 2020. We started in oh. February 2020. <laughs> So we moved to Munich, my wife, two children, and I. Wow. Moved to Munich altogether. We just had our second child, so she could take off from work. And we went to Munich uh, for the Amtia for those eight months. And then, uh, obviously, as you know, COVID mm. happened. Wow. And they, they moved everything online anyway, so it was a bit <laughs> moving through all of Germany to then basically... Yeah, yeah. At home was a bit of a bummer, but Munich is a nice city. We enjoyed our time, so it was absolutely fine in the end. Um, and what you learn in the Amtia is the idea is that you see a bit how the patent office works. So you spend two months in the German patent office. Um, there, one month in the, the section for patents and one month in the section for trademarks. And then you move to the federal patent court. And in the federal, federal patent court, you do, well, you, you support the judges, you, well, not really support the judges, you more like participate in the proceedings in the sense of listening. Um, you have to write what is called a votum, several of them actually, where you kind of suggest a result for the case. That is mm -hmm. actually a lot of fun because it's such a different position to the position you normally take. Normally, you have, you're supporting your client, right? Yeah. You work for your client. Yeah. And uh, you see everything through the lens of your client. If yeah, your sure. client wants a patent, you think this is the greatest invention that ever happened. Yeah. If, and you argue that. And because you argue it, you believe it. Um, if you are attacking a patent of a competitor, you think this is clearly not worth an invention, uh, not worth a patent, it's, an, it's not a real invention, it's, well known all of this what he was doing or they were doing so you get to this point where you're very well trained actually a lot better trained than any judges in having that lens taking the lens of one party and then you change the position you mm. uh, actually have to decide in the case between two parties which what is actually the true outcome what is the correct outcome here from a patent law perspective so it's it's a lot of fun, and again, you do a 50-50 split, so three months on patents and three months on trademarks. Trademarks, wow. And so, and then this all culminates in the final exam, of course. Mm -hmm. I always have to write an exam at the end. Uh, and that's also a, a real challenge, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, the good thing about the German patent exam is that the vast majority of people 
um, passive, so it has a very high passing rate. I think 90, 95% passing wow. rate. And the the topics are you have four exams, written exams, four written exams, patent, trademarks, designs, and uh, employee invention law. And then you have then you get your results, and then you have an oral exam about anything really. That's uh, quite the experience to do that. Oh. And how uh, long so, this oral exam last? Uh, it's usually it's a morning. It's like four hours for four candidates, so an hour per candidate or something like that. round about that area. Um, it's quite an experience. It, it, yeah, I did it. I in, believe you. I did, I did it December last year. And because of COVID, it was very special circumstances. We had, so everybody had to wear a mask, obviously, for five hours or something, four hours. And uh, all the windows were open. And now we're talking about December in Munich. Yes? <laughs> we're talking about maybe two degrees Celsius, if we're lucky. And I was trying to use my fat law book during the uh, exam and um, with my gloves on but that did not work <laughs> it was so cold it was uh, it was quite the experience well so- sounds challenging yeah yeah in f- four hours it's like you you're defending your client basically in front of the court no this is actually really legal questions they'll ask you legal yeah. questions um, some will be more or less practical, but some will be really theoretical. So this is really de- like more detached from your daily work. That oh, okay. actually, these exams often then look more into like special cases in the law and things like that. It's really more like a classical exam, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so, and the other part is the European one. And mm-hmm. actually, the European one is really straightforward. I mean, you do need a certain amount of training, but that. Mm-hmm. You just kind of need somebody who signs that you did that sort of training. It's much, much simpler. Um, so the quality of the whole training is actually objectively a bit lower. But the flip side on that is that the exam is has very low passing rates. Uh, so the European patent exam happens once a year for everybody who wants to become a patent attorney in Europe. And yes, is a and, and where? Oh, that's in so <laughs> again. <laughs> that's COVID changed everything. COVID changed everything. Uh, so until 2020, um, there were a few places where you could do it. The biggest one was in Munich, mm-hmm. but there were also some, I think, some in, in Paris and in London, and, um, okay. and certainly also place. in Southern Europe. I'm not sure where exactly all the different locations were. There was one in Berlin as well. Um, so there were different locations you could do the exam. Um, 2020, which was my year to do the European patent exam, it didn't happen. They canceled the exam, which if you think that it's an exam that happens once a year, canceling yeah, yeah. it is a big deal. Sure. And what they did now for this year was to move it online. Uh, that was also very challenging experience. So I did this actually here in the room that I'm sitting in right now. I did my four four days, that's four days is the exam, four days of a total, let me think about it, 
I think you have something like 17 hours of exams in four days. Uh, so I, I'm not going to lie. These exams, they are a challenge. And yeah. the vast majority of people who do this, right, who become pen attorneys, they are in their um, early to mid-30s. They may have a family, right? So you're already working um, yeah. and you're doing this extra on the side. So it can be intimidating. And it, it's really yeah. something that you should also realize when you're planning and when you're considering that route, it's an investment. It's a real investment. You invest a lot of time. Um, but of course, you also get a profession that is really interesting and of high value on the job market. Yeah. And about this passing rate between German yeah. and European, it's in European, it's a lower passing rate. Yeah. From your point. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so it's around 35% that pass all exams. Re reason is like training is not as good or just exams are more challenging and demanding. So and all I'm saying now is absolutely my opinion, right? This yeah, is not sure. in any way objective or anything like that. But uh, I personally think that the German exams are intellectually more difficult. I think the European exams are a bit ambiguous at times, and they have very, very difficult marking schemes. So if you don't get the answer they want, you fail apart. Um, so, it, I mean, that is maybe an extreme position. It's, it's not completely correct to go that far. Yeah, but I, I got but, what you mean. Yeah, but I think... so. To say the European exam is more difficult, I don't know. Yeah, it's more difficult in the sense that the passing rates are low, but it's not more difficult in the sense that intellectually it's harder to do these exams. It's not. It's just harder to get the, the points you need to pass. Whereas I would say in the German one, um, you will you basically never get the correct answer, but that's okay as long as you argued your uh your case well and you got enough things right uh it, it's not a problem that you didn't write it in a way that a court wrote it for example mm, for example okay. so just to explain why i'm saying this in the german exam you usually have cases that's something very common in law so a case an exam as a case so you get a case that means like i don't know something like uh alexei went down the street um He was looking at his, at his smartphone when he was uh, passing the traffic light. Sure. And because of that, uh, he didn't see that a car was coming and he had actually red light and the car had to step on the brakes. And because of that, uh, the car drove against some part of a building or like some, let's say, uh, against something Uh, like against a football, <laughs> I drove against a football, and the football belonged to another person, Sophie. What can Sophie do now to get recompensation for the football? That's like a, a case. That I'm just saying like some random yeah, stuff. Yeah. But it, and and now obviously we're talking about patent law and not a football mm -hmm. that's broken on the street. But uh, you have a case, obviously substantially more complex than what I was picturing now, and. These cases 
are often, at least partially also, already have been decided by a court. So you often have like uh, the, the draft, the people who drafted the, the, the exam, they just look at what recent cases happened at the, at the courts. Actually, usually um, some, some, um, some judge will even draft the, the exam. They will look at, okay, what, what interesting case did I have in the last few months? Or what case were at the highest courts? Oh, this looks interesting. How can I modify it a little bit to make an ex actual exam out of it? And then you'll get this case. And, uh, and that's really hard to solve perfectly, right? I mean, you, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're not that trained. And also, you might not have all the relevant information and so on. Wow. So, but the cool thing about that is you, it's really like intellectually challenging, but there's also like a lot of flexibility in it. You can really argue your case and, and, and practice yeah. how you yeah. should do it as a lawyer as well, as an attorney. Whereas in the European one, the idea is actually, the idea is nice. The idea is uh, you have four exams and they all should look at different areas of your daily work. Mm -hmm. uh, one is, so they call it part A to D, A, B, C, D. And part D is just the law questions and ex like explaining a case to your mm -hmm. client is basically the idea. Um, so that's, if you study well, it's fine. Like if you study well, you'll pass D. But A is writing an application. So you have three hours or three and a half hours to write, four hours, I think, to write a patent application. So you, so you get like an invention in a certain area. I think this year it was... And but you you're getting like, this uh, application for your area, for chemistry or pharma? It used to be like that, but it's not the case anymore. Wow. And they can ask you to write an application about, I don't know, some piece of new machinery for... Okay, yes. But, but obviously they know that not everybody comes from the same technical area. So mm -hmm. what they try to do is keep the technical aspects um, not too complicated. So that the focus is really on the on the patent law aspect. Overall, I'd say they do a good job at that. Like some people like, complained about one area, this uh, about one of the parts A, B, C, D, and with part C. Some yeah. complained about that. I thought it was still okay. And so I'm just looking at part A. It was something about an engine and the sort of a gas turbine engine and oh. sort of different uh, parts of it, um, but also mm -hmm. kind of different comp um, chemical components it was containing. So it was also, it was a mechanical part, it was a chemical part as well. And it, the idea is not that the technical aspect should be a, a problem for any of the yeah. participants, it should be the law aspects that are challenged. So in part A, the main focus is, are you able to draw good claims. Claims are, in a patent application, what defines the scope of protection. Mm -hmm. So even though they might not make up a lot of the volume of a patent application, um, the heart and soul of a patent are the claims. That's what really matters. Mm -hmm. And so, um, for example, in, in this exam, 70% of the marks are awarded for uh, drafting the correct claims. I think even more. Think, wow. Yes, in this area, whereas the rest just gives you some bonus points. It doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. The claims are what matters. 
And part B is uh, meant to be a response to an office action. This is something that you do a lot in your daily work. Uh, you've written a patent application for a client, but you draft the claims in a way that you try to um, protect the broadest scope of any invention. Okay, so let's, how to explain that, for example. Let's say you found a new compound um, that works really, really well in uh, helping people with their eyesight. They just see things better. I don't know how that would work, but it doesn't matter now. Um, so you found this compound, and you will, as an inventor, most certainly come to me and say, but this, uh, this very specific compound in this very specific concentration combined with this specific uh, other composition will work perfectly. And my job, first job is now to say, okay, that's great, but might this other composition or this other com uh, compound that is structurally very similar, that belongs to the same class, uh, work similarly? Uh, can we maybe also try completely different concentrations? And so on. And, and we might not even try them in the lab all that much. We might just say, let's just draw a claim that tries to cover the biggest scope possible. Mm. Because what you do not want is to have a patent that is granted, that you get quickly, but then it has a really small scope of protection because your competitors will just very easily find ways around it. You always have to try to get the broadest scope of protection. Yeah. So then it becomes difficult for competitors to find ways around your patent. And that's it's really, really important because the clients usually when they start working um, with IP or when they have not that much experience when they come from university mm -hmm. recently or things like that, they want patents quickly. Yeah. That's great. Having a patent quickly is great. <laughs> but a bad patent isn't worth it all. You want a good patent. And a good patent means broad scope of protection. That's really crucial. We start sometimes in a way that we try to get the most unrealistic scope of protection, right? We go very, very broad. And the patent office will say, no way. Look at this document and this document and this document. Uh, this subsection is already known or this component mm. composition is already known for another application. I, uh, I don't know, like things like that. So they will basically tell us all the subgroups in this broad scale that are not possible anymore. Maybe we find arguments against that. That's one aspect. And alternatively, we can always shrink it in scope, right? We can always make it more specific. The important thing is only that it's already written down in the original patent application because you cannot add information. You have to have it originally in the application, which is why drafting patent applications is hard, right? You have to think yeah. ahead. You have to yeah. think about the problems that might arise during the granting mm. proceedings wow. in three years' time, right? Because it's just have to think about that's training, right? Eventually, you kind of know yeah. what sort of yeah. problems arise usually, but uh, you have to kind of look a bit forward, look a bit about what's already known in the technical area as well. Yeah. And so that's the second, second, second example is how do you draft? Like the, you, you have a patent there, a patent application uh, on a certain technical area. This time it was, I think it was an aquarium, so a fish tank. So that, that, that was a very easy technical area. But actually, the, the exam was not easy, the part B. This. Part C is writing in opposition. This is, mm -hmm. this is, is 
historically probably the hardest exam. So because writing an opposition is now attacking a granted patent. Mm -hmm. So you have somebody, a competitor, yeah, works in the same area that you work in, and they get a, a patent granted. And now you have nine months time after the granting of the patent to file an opposition. And this means explain why the patent should not have been granted. And, uh, and that's a difficult exam because you get uh, five or six documents that you can use in different ways to attack the patent. And there's a very, very specific way that the European Patent Office wants you to use those documents, mm -hmm. but you don't have that much time. You have five and a half hours to, dra to draft. Mm -hmm. a this year, I think we have 40 pages of documents uh, at the start to read so, through. So Let's say, yeah, this five hours for this exam starts. At the beginning of this exam, you're getting all the yeah. 40 pages and you have to read it, consume yes. it to understand it in that time. I actually, I, I got to be a bit careful because I'm talking so much about the exams. I, I don't want to intimidate any people who might be interested in this area because all of this is still fun. I just want to also be real, like explain realistically how it's uh, going down, and you do practice all these things, right? I mean, yeah, sure. these are highly standardized exams, so you can practice them, which is what I think is more in the case of the European patent exam. It's, mm -hmm. you know, these four exams will be like that. They will have one, some sort of variation of that, and uh, you can study and, and practice those, right? If you just did it now, cold turkey, that would be ridiculously difficult, but you do practice them over and over again and eventually you also get the kind of pace you know this is not realistic like this is not a work situation right you're not you would never write an opposition uh in five and a half hours because that would be a <laughs> shitty opposition like the only scenario in which that happens is when your client discovers the day of the last day of the the opposition deadline oh i need to attack this pen yeah okay then you'll do it but it's not yeah. going to be the greatest opposition right usually do want to have some time to actually really write a good argument of opposition down. And this is obviously not really what it's about. It's about getting some sort of structure the way that the EPO wants it. And yeah, and unfortunately, the passing rates are very low, as I said, around 35%. But that is for all four exams. And you do not have to repeat all four exams. So let's say and this happened also this year a lot, that people might pass three out of four exams. Oh, okay. Then then you have checked three boxes, right? They will not come back. So next year, you oh, only have only to pass one. one exam. I think this is really, really important if you think about yeah. the uh, European qualification exam. You do not have to repeat all four exams. And if you pass all four of them, that's great. Then you finish your qualification in European mm -hmm. patent law. But if not, okay, then you'll come back for one or two the next year, and uh, and hopefully then it's over, right? I mean, this and is... when when you're coming to the yeah this European exam, then you're also in f discussing it, yeah, let's say writing opposition and defending it in front of judges, or you like just creating draft and sending this document. Yeah, it's just uh, this is this is like the European. The scale is so much different, right? In Germany, in yeah. the German patent system, you have around 150 new attorneys a year. Mm -hmm. But in the European one, you have substantially more. As I said, 500 new ones qualified yeah. each year. But since only 35 has, yeah. you have uh, you have more 
uh, like 1,200 or something. This you have no interaction with anybody basically. You just write the yeah. the exam, and right now you even only write it at home in, on your computer, and then you. It's like a an IT system uh, lockdown browser. I found that name quite funny considering that we just went through so many lockdowns. But the idea, it's called lockdown browser because you can't do anything else on your computer if you use it, right? It locks you down. Ah, okay. Yeah, so that you don't, like, look on other websites. My impression, German, yeah, of course, it uh, depends on scale. German exam, it's more, like, personal, so to say, intimate, because you directly discussing it with judges, other patent attorneys, European is more like, yeah, let's say bureaucratic. Yeah, I'd say that I would agree with that, yes. I mean, I clearly also kind of described it that way. Maybe somebody else would disagree with me completely. I, and that's obviously obviously absolutely fine. And this is about, this is what we do all day, right? I mean, this is yeah. my job to argue a certain position. Something that you have to get used to when you're a scientist prior, that your job isn't about finding the truth anymore. It's more about finding good arguments for your client. When you're passing all these four exams, then you're getting like, you're getting, I think, your like number or something as a patent attorney, a European, right? Right. You have to do some formal things. So, so I was lucky enough to pass those four exams this year, but I haven't done the whole process of uh, going through the formal things. So I don't exactly know, but I know that you get a number. Yes, there's something like that. Mm -hmm. We got our results two weeks ago, and I was oh, just happy to pass. Yeah, so, yeah, so that's you did the thing. It like five months ago? Yes, yes. Six it takes months five ago. months to get the results. Wow. It's, uh, uh, that's, that's a long waiting period that you're unsure about it. And then there's this one big day where everybody gets yes. their results, and you hear from your friends, and you can't open the file or something, and you get so nervous. It's, uh, it's a very, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like torture, mental torture. So. <laughs> yeah, it, it was funny also because I was lucky. I, I kind of heard it early on from friends that the results were out. Other friends that I told later on that the results were out, they couldn't open like the program anymore because so many there was so much traffic that the website broke down. Oh, okay. Which is just like you know from all these other people the results, and you're like, I want to know my results. I don't want to wait anymore. They can't open the file. Okay, exam, everything is behind, then now yes. you're working as a, as a partner, as it's called, right? Um, it's called like so, okay, we've got to differentiate here. No, I'm not working as a partner. As a partner, so a partner is somebody who owns parts of the law firm, right? Ah, okay. Yeah. So I think for a lot of listeners that might not know anything about how patent law and this law world works, I'll explain maybe a little bit how it works. So uh, you basically have three different places realistically that you could work at mm. as a scientist who now thinks about going into patent law. The first one is a patent office. There's a very limited amount of patent offices. You can kind of imagine there's the German patent office. By the way, they look all the time for people, so it's, uh, it's worth looking if that's maybe an option. But clearly you have to go to Munich, there's like just one place. There's also a European patent office, so there's like different places you can apply. And that's, these are good jobs, but you will do very, very specific technical things mm -hmm. for a very long time, right? You will become the expert in this 
very specific technical area. This is typical for working at a patent office. Mm-hmm. Then you have in-house counsel, in-house attorneys. They work in industry firms. Let's say at Bayard, BSF, now if you're talking about chemistry, mm-hmm. rather larger companies. Um, smaller companies might have one attorney, but they might also have somebody who's not actually an attorney who works that position and who works with outside counsel from law, law firms mm-hmm. and more, does like more organizational things and less really the subject working on oppositions, working on all these things. Mm-hmm. In-house counsels rather than larger firms, and there you have, again, a rather specific technical area. So you might work mm-hmm. on a specific area in... I don't know, drug development, you might work on a specific subset, right? I'm working on... So you're not going to see all that much difference um, from a technological perspective, but what you have, of course, is a very important role within the company to explain um, IP within projects and to use, like, function as as, as, like, a very important part in projects, launching a new product, for example. For example, uh, if you want to launch a new product, but you haven't written a patent application yet, Mm -hmm. that might be a bad idea, right, from an intellectual property perspective. Mm -hmm. So you will also have, as an in-house lawyer, as an in-house counsel, the role of kind of interacting with different parts of the company, Mm -hmm. uh, research and development, but also marketing, sales, all these parts of the company to kind of say, okay, we can do this at that and that point, but we take this and this risk. And all these kind of aspects go together um, so that, that and, and also strategy, right? We're looking yeah, at the, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. also something that happens more in-house strategy. Okay, and then the third and probably biggest group is law firms. So you can work in a law firm. And there, you definitely have the most technical diversity. Um, you'll just do what your clients do, right? Yeah. And whatever they want from you, you'll do it. Uh, and that, that can be really fascinating because you work in technical areas that you have not really had that much experience in yet. But if you work with a client for several years, then obviously you also become an expert in those areas. Never as much as your clients, but... Um, you can really get used to this sort of the problems that people have in the technical area and so on. Most people do their training, not all, there are people who do their training also uh, definitely at the patent office, that's actually quite common as well, mm-hmm. but then people usually stay at the patent office. Oh. Um, or they do it in-house, that's possible in industry firms, but most people I'd say do it in law firms. Yeah, it's a very different structure to an industry company most mm-hmm. of the cases. And so they, law firms are usually structured as partner firms. So they are, in German, it's called Sozietät. I've never heard that word before going in this area. So it's a Sozietät. So it's a, it's a firm that has several partners that own the company, that own the law firm. So maybe like you have a, a small to medium-sized law firm. So law firms are small, by the way, right? Uh, the mm-hmm. big law firms, the, the big law firms are maybe 200 people working there, right? small compared to other companies. Yeah. These are not IP law firms, at least. Like the very big law firms, of course, it's different. But if you specialize IP boutique, maybe you have 200 people, right? Maybe 300. And that's that's really like the higher end of 
size, at least in Germany. In the smaller firm, let's say we have a law firm with eight attorneys and maybe 25 staff, let's say, right? Uh, other people who work in the firm. That's like that's I think a usually pro like normal proportion of because so there are so many other things to do uh, in a law firm yeah. just the attorney work. Yeah, there may be four to five of these lawyers are partners, mm -hmm. but the younger ones that are not yet partners they want to become partners. So mm -hmm. you the usual path at least so far it's changing a little bit maybe but so far the normal path is you leave. You come back from the ANSIA, you finish your ANSIA, mm -hmm. you go to the, your law firm, maybe the law firm you worked earlier on, or maybe another one. And then you work in some sort of corporation, some are proper employees, mm -hmm. some do more like a freelance sort of work for the, for the law firm. And you do that for a certain period of time, in the best case scenario, this time is short and so we're talking maybe two years or so but in, so it's often in this time frame between two to five years that you get to the point where the, you then become a partner and so you mm -hmm. buy into the company and you own parts of the company that can obviously be quite lucrative but at the same time it could also be very risky right i mean very yeah, risky yeah, yeah. pet law is not that risky in the sense that still a very functioning uh, industry, but it's risky in the sense that it's now your company. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you also become an entrepreneur in that route, um, which can be a lot of fun, I think. Uh, a lot of people really like that. You should just be aware of that. That's like a lot of, a lot of patent attorneys eventually become partners. And that is not, that you're not just an, an attorney anymore. You're also a bit of an entrepreneur. You're very, very interested in getting clients because that is how you uh, let the whole thing work. But also, you are, it's really important that you think about, okay, managing costs, for example, right? I mean, it's great if you uh, make a lot of money, but if you spend it all on your luxurious <laughs> offices in, in downtown, uh, then it might not work out, right? So you've got to think a bit of an, as an entrepreneur. And that's a challenge because that's not something you get any training in, right? Mm -hmm. That's something completely new. Okay. If someone decides to get as a partner, other partners decide, like, let's discuss it. Yeah. But actually, a very good question because I just also realized there's, it's so rare nowadays. It used to be so common, but actually, there's also a fourth option. You just start your no, new law firm, yeah. right? It's yeah. it's not it's not common anymore because compared to like 20, 30 years ago, the market is more saturated. Mm -hmm. um, but 30 years ago, a lot of people would just leave the Antia and start their own law firm. Do it with a bunch of friends uh, from the Antia. They just start together their law firm. That's not very common anymore. Like mm -hmm. usually now, at least at the beginning you start at a bigger law firm uh, that already has clients, that already has a structure. And yes, in that case, the people who decide whether or not you become a partner eventually are the partners. Yeah. Yes, they own the company. They are the people who make the decisions. And so if you don't get along with them, you will not become a partner. Quite a commitment to become a partner. Yes. Because it means like from now on, you're in no matter what. Yeah, it's pretty much right. It's a, it's a big step. I, uh, I agree. I, I think there's also people nowadays, it's, 
again, I think there's change, a lot changing because there, I think there must have been a time in the 90s or something where the, the lack of patent attorneys was so severe. People came back from the, the ANSIA and they basically became partners. It was so, like there was such a, a, a lack of people. And uh, back then, obviously, you could make very good money. You can still make this money, but back then it was, uh, I think, a very good opportunity if you happen to be in that situation in the 90s. Overall, for most people, if they become partners and they thought about it thoroughly beforehand, they know that their firm is actually working well and they have uh, had clients that they work together for many, many years, maybe mm -hmm. decades, uh, that's, then it's a pretty decent bet, right? I mean, yeah. yes, there's substantial risk involved. I mean, imagine one of your yeah. biggest clients breaks away. That's always possible and then it's always risky. Um, but if you join as a partner in a firm that's functioning well, that usually should be fine. But I must admit, this is an area where I'm also walking on thin ice in the sense that I'm not, I've, I have never become a partner. I don't really know all the details about this. This is something that where it's more about hearsay, what I heard about it, what I read about it. Uh, when you see, like, of course, you probably also met other people who doing the this three years education to become patent attorneys. Everyone is, let's say, have right skills and mindset to do it. And from your perspective, where this, I don't maybe not the most important skill for whom you would not recommend to go. Yes, that's actually IP. Yeah, thanks for this question. It's actually a really important question because I think you're 100% right. There's a very specific set of skills that and you should be looking at and, and be honest to yourself. Is this yeah. me or is this not me? Not just because, like money, let's go for it. Yeah, no, this is, and, and it doesn't work like that, right? I mean, yeah. you, you still have to be good at your job. And uh, so in this sense, so what's the most important thing? Very honestly, when you were writing up your PhD, if you were hating that, this is not the job. <laughs> honest, like, honest, because you have to read and write a lot. Our job is with paper. I mean, hopefully more and more digital paper. Surprisingly, <laughs> still a ridiculous amount of uh, real paper, at least in, in some law firms. But your job is with, with, with paper in the sense that mm -hmm. uh, you read patents, you read prior art, you read technical literature, and you write. This is, this is your... Your weapon of use to say, right? This is what mm -hmm. you use to to argue for your client. Of course, there are course court proceedings, but they make up such a small amount of it of your time overall. Just arguing well orally is is not the deciding factor. And also, if mm -hmm. your submissions and the written proceedings were crap, yeah. you're not going to save it by your oral proceedings. Not uh, no way that you save that. Writing well. Being happy to read a lot, and I mean a lot, and that's really, really important. And so if you were the person during your PhD that loved the lab and hated the writing, that might not be perfect. To be honest, I love the lab, so I completely understand why you would love the lab, but I also really enjoyed writing. So I, yeah. like, never had, I never had an issue, but in that sense that like, I hated writing, but I had three friends 
uh, at, during my PhD, the British guys, and they they just hated it so much. So for them, this route would be really bad because just sitting there and writing and thinking about how to write a sentence, you've got to really like that. And actually, you you have to have a certain affinity to language as well. Um, mm. Language is also really, really important. You have to spend time thinking about, okay, is this really the way I want to write this one sentence or can I write it in a different way that supports my argument in a stronger fashion? If you find this whole process tedious, it's not worth it. You should, you should have a certain affinity to language and writing and reading. Otherwise, I think it's very hard to overcome that. It's at least my impression from... Yeah. I think yeah, it's very important. Yeah, definitely. And something that I think most scientists have that you need as a skill, but I'm not worried in this regard for people who come from, in particular, chemistry, life science, things like that, where you even do a PhD. Um, that's a critical thinking is important. Of course, critical thinking is important. Um, really thinking thoroughly through the technical details. But all these things... I'm not worried if you if you put a decent scientist at it because that's something they already learned and they're good at, right? Being being honest with your scientific arguments is even really really important if you're a good scientist, right? You don't want to yeah. draw unsubstantiated conclusions in your research. Mm -hmm. So, if you're a good scientist, you will be able to do that to use that very well in IP as well if you work in patents, so that you don't bring up shitty arguments, right? That's always a risk because you work often in technical areas that you're not that much of an expert as mm -hmm. when you did your PhD, right? You know, in my case, for example, I did quite a bit of work on, on polymers and I didn't have that much training. I didn't do my PhD in, in polymer mm -hmm. chemistry at all. You need to be very careful that your arguments are technically sound. You can obviously get that also from talking to the client, yeah. but to a certain degree, that has to just be your uh, your way of working, right? You're just careful, you read up on things, you don't just write something down because it sounds cool, uh, but you take the time to actually think about it thoroughly. Sounds like good portion of copywriting involved. It should be convincing what you're writing. Yes, it should be convincing with what you write, but you should be convincing on very sound, on a very sound round, right? Mm. Technically and uh, from a law perspective. This is something I think that's difficult at the beginning. At the beginning, you want to kind of, you have this one idea and you just really want to throw it in there and you think, oh, this is, this is great. Like, or like, for example, typical example of, of what people do wrong, wrong, they see something that the other side, if you have like a contentious proceeding with another party or maybe even with the, with the office, maybe the other side did something slightly wrong, right? got something slightly wrong and you detect that and you really like, oh, I'm proud I got something that they did wrong. And then they use really harsh language, for example, to point that out or uh, they, they might overextend on that position. Whereas it's much smarter to like explain scientifically in a proper way why this is correct, what are the conclusions that come from that and why this is actually relevant to the case. These are things that you've got to learn a little bit. Convincing, yes, but convincing because you have a sound basis of your argument. 
Yeah, so with like living emotions aside. We are talking to other scientists. We are talking to people who have also a law training behind them. Yeah. They are looking for a very specific sort of language and for, for a certain sort of structure in our arguments that we provide to explain why this is, and to use these patent terms, they're very important, novel and inventive, if you have an invention of these two really big layers in patent law, an invention has to be novel and it has to be inventive mm -hmm. to, uh, so that a patent can be granted. And when you're working with clients, as a patent attorney, you're not, you're not only like yeah, drafting patent application, writing claims, you should, you kind of sort of educating them about patent law. So yes, in terms of they must yeah, believe you because it will be better for them to, as you mentioned, with this exact concentration, we should yeah. take a broader scale. How big is that part in your, let's, let's say, now as nowadays for you? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. If we work with clients, that what is important, so convincing is maybe a bit, it goes a bit far, I'd say. You don't necessarily want to convince them. You want to explain. I agree with yeah, that. Explain. You also you also really want to use all their knowledge because they will always be better on the technical points. Mm -hmm. So you really want to go there. Um, that's actually something I really enjoyed, going to a client to visit them and talking about the patent applications. You cannot use the law language with an inventor. Yeah. Right? That's ridiculous. You need to be able to talk to them like normal scientists, normal people, normal scientists, people, I don't know. It's already, already a specific group, but <laughs> you have to meet them on that level, right? Yeah. And so you, but at the same time in your head, you're already thinking about how you're drafting the application, right? You're already thinking about the way you will talk to the office and not uh, the way that you're talking right now. So this sort of, you also have a translation kind of role in there. Mm -hmm. You're trying to use the information you can get from them in a way that you can then use it when you draft the application or when you uh, talk to the office, write with the office. What is also really, really important when you deal with the client is to kind of, as you said, explain to them the function of IP. Um, in particular, if you're working with smaller companies, they often don't have that much experience with it, and you really have to also kind of explain a little bit the strategic aspects to them. That's not relevant if you work with larger firms. They have their in-house mm -hmm. counsel, and they have yeah. people who are taking care of the strategic aspects. Um, there, it's really about the hardcore uh, patent law details. But if you're working with smaller companies, medium-sized companies, they are oftentimes, they have very distorted ideas of what patents can and cannot do. So I think mm -hmm. the most common thing I experienced from day one on my job, really from day one on my training when I went to clients is that, I think it's actually most of the listeners will actually also believe this. People believe that a patent, if you get a patent, you're allowed to do a certain thing. So most people believe mm -hmm. if you get a patent for a new process to make, to make mushrooms, that you are allowed to make those mushrooms this way. But the real way of looking at it, the correct way of looking at it is that now you have the monopoly to, to make sure that nobody does that. So you can forbid others to do that. 
But there's actually a scenario where you can forbid it to others to use a certain invention. So nobody can use, nobody can use, you deny the use of that process, but somebody else has a subgroup of that process and denies you to use your own patent. So this is actually a situation that happens and that clients just do not understand, right? They are sitting there and they are, well, I have this patent, why am I not allowed to do this? And you're like, yeah, I understand. It's really counterintuitive, but it's a different question. Yeah, a patent allows you to ensure that others are not allowed to do something. And, and that's really important for clients to understand that when they use IP, because if they don't get that right, they might really use IP incorrectly. And, and so that's, that can be a bit of a shame, right? Yeah. Uh, if, if, because it's not cheap to get patents. And yeah. it's overall, it is, there's so much value in what a patent can provide to you if you use it smartly and if you actually use it as something that, uh, yeah, if competitors want to use it, they have to license it or they have to find a way around it. Or, right? if, you, if you don't realize that it's mainly about your competitors and it's not that much about what you are allowed to do, and that, that's, a, that's actually a, a different subgroup, right? If you want to know what you're allowed to do, you do what we call a freedom to operate. So you do an FTO and you analyze the patent landscape um, so you look, okay, okay what patents exist, uh, which ones are enforced, uh, which patent applications might be relevant at a later stage. And then from that, you can deduce, okay, I can bring that product on the market because nobody has a patent that I would infringe. I'm not falling within the scope of protection of any patent of a competitor. But it's, yeah, it's not an intuitive way of thinking. Yeah, that's uh, tricky, so, yeah. And, and so... When, even with clients that do fabulous technical things, if they don't have anybody specifically with experience in IP, mm. they might not know that. And even higher management just might not know that, right? There might be the CEO who started this company with this great idea, has no idea of what the hell we're doing for the last 10 years in, with their patents. So it's, it's really important to get a few things straight and to explain it to them without becoming condescending or anything, just really in a way, okay, look, uh, this is how we do the best for you. Like, this is how we get the most value for you. Yeah, that, that's important, this trust. Yeah, that's also 100%. Because you don't want to work with clients you don't trust or clients don't work, wouldn't be happy to work with patent attorney they don't trust. Yeah, you got to be honest and try to create the most value for them. And another role I think you have when you look at what a patent attorney does, and that was something I was talking a little bit about in one direction, this translation, this translator role, right? So you have to translate the patent word, the patent language to the client, mm -hmm. but you also have to translate the, the things that the client is saying to the patent office, to the courts, in particular, if you're standing in front of civil courts, it becomes extreme because for a subset of cases, yeah, so-called infringement cases, so if you want to enforce a patent, if you actually want to use your patent to, to like say, okay, I forbid you to do this, right? That happens in front of a civil court. Mm -hmm. And if you go in front of a civil court, the judges in front of a civil court, they have no technical background. Mm -hmm. So now really talking about people who study law, right? Now, 
usually there are specific courts that have a certain experience in Europe. The by far most important court is Düsseldorf, and this, which is why there's a lot of law firms in Düsseldorf. That's why I'm in Düsseldorf, for example. And so there's Düsseldorf is uh, very important for the civil court aspect of, of patents, whereas Munich, and still or even in all of Europe, is very important for the patent office. And um, so you have the situation where you have to explain to the judge, even if they have a certain technical background, what your client actually did here, right? Where you might have to explain the invention a bit more, even also further going from what you wrote down in the patent application. And so you have translation role in both directions, to the client, but also from the client to the courts. Head gonna explode, I think, in this case. <laughs> But I mean, all of that is also fun, right? I mean, I think yeah, this is, yeah. I, I don't want to, again, I don't want to intimidate anybody. Uh, there is a certain complexity in all of that, but that complexity also makes it interesting. Yeah, it, it excites you, yeah. That's for sure. And, and of course, as always, at the beginning, it's really foreign to one, but with time, you get used to things, right? You get experience, and experience always helps. Okay, Simon, let's wrap up here because it was super interesting discussion about all insight, some insights, let's say, of IP mm -hmm. in Germany. T tell me, where are, you, where are you going as an IP, uh, as a patent attorney now? You're now working as... So I, I'm currently working freelance uh, for uh, mainly one law firm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I will start with an in-house position at the beginning of next year mm -hmm. in a bigger chemical company. And why you decided for yourself that it, yeah, it's uh, better for I, This is, of course, a very personal uh, yeah, decision yeah. everybody has to make 100%. by themselves. And um, for me, the main reason, but to be, I mean, I, I think I really like to work in in-house because the strategic aspect of patents becomes more important. You're working more in teams. So in a law firm, you can work really a lot on your own. It's, a, it's quite a, If you ask somebody who likes to work by themselves, actually IP might also be a really good option because you can, you don't have to, but you can be in a situation where you can really decide a lot by yourself. You can do most of the work by yourself, only in very big cases you need several lawyers, but in most situations, mm -hmm. one lawyer is enough. And so you can really have your own way of doing it. You have your own way of uh, working with clients. But I actually really like working in teams, and that's an aspect I, I was hoping to have a bit more. And so that was also definitely an aspect why I wanted to um, move in-house. Um, very honestly, it's also a decision from a family perspective. It's just a different situation if you're in-house in, -house in uh, a larger chemical company. Yeah. Um, with, uh, as, an, as an employee, uh, that's also a really important factor for me. I'm a father of two small children, and that just matters to me. For sure, yeah, that that's hundred percent makes sense. That was yeah, again, super interesting. I probably won't talk to you once more. <laughs> there is a lot uncovered, left uncovered. Yes, of course. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Congratulations first on passing exams. Good luck on your journey and see you around, I hope. Yes, thank you very much for your time. Thanks.